0: When I first came in over there, he ran and jumped on me like a tick. <laughs> if he gets any bigger, he's going to knock me over. <laughs> so, standing at 29,035 feet above sea level, Mount Everest is the highest mountain on earth with a summit. That straddles the border between China and Nepal and believe it or not Every year in May some 1200 people make a mad dash for its peak Now personally, I think that's crazy But if that's your thing Go for it and if any of you decide to make that trip now that you're retired (laughs) You better plan ahead because reaching the tallest summit on the planet is not for the faint of heart. Uh, Oxygen levels, even at the base, are one-third the amount that they are at sea level, and they steadily decrease as as you ascend. Uh, Temperatures are far below zero, bringing the ever-present threat of frostbite, and altitude sickness begins to set in with effects that range from just a mild disorientation all the way to death. Uh, And because of all of that, people are careful how they approach it. They're careful how they approach that mountain. Uh, they, they watch their steps. They learn how to measure their ascent. And as a result, good mountain climbers have a healthy respect for the mountain. Uh, and, and not just for its beauty and its grandeur, but for its lofty heights and for its power and for its potential for danger. And as we move ahead in our sermon series through the book of Psalms... We're going to see today that King David had and he intended to inspire that same kind of awe and reverence and respect for the holiness of God. And we're going to see that today in Psalm 15, uh, which is a psalm of David. And he writes, "O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, Never be moved. Never be moved. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard this this story that I'm about to tell you. In fact, I don't even know if it's 100% true, but I I did read it earlier this week, uh, supposedly based on a newspaper article, uh, that in August of 1998, in Montevideo, Uruguay, a bass trombonist by the name of Paulo Esperanza, who played with the, the Uruguayan Symphony there, uh, in a misplaced moment of inspiration decided he was going to make his own contribution to the cannon shots fired as part of the orchestra's performance of Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture at an outdoor concert where he was playing. Uh, so according to the article, in complete seriousness, he placed a large ignited firecracker with the equivalent strength to a quarter stick of dynamite into the bell of his brand new brass Yamaha double-valve bass trombone. Now, as you may have already guessed, although Paolo had an advanced degree in music, he was completely clueless in propulsion physics. (laughs) Nor was he qualified to handle high-powered artillery. And in his haste to to get the horn up before the firecracker went off, he failed to raise it high enough so as to give the mini-rocket enough arc to clear the orchestra, And and because he failed to sufficiently elevate the bell of the horn, the blast propelled the rocket between two rows in the woodwind and viola section of the orchestra, missing them, thankfully, but flying straight into the stomach of the conductor, driving him off the podium and directly into the front row of the audience, knocking them over like a row of dominoes. When all the while backstage, uh, Paulo's swan song was still unfolding because the force of the blast was so great that it split the bell of the trombone right down the middle, turning it inside out, while at the same time propelling Paolo back off the riser. And as a grand finale, as he fell backwards, he lost his grip, and the slide of the trombone uh, came loose from his hand, allowing the built-up back pressure of the blast to propel the slide like a spear into the head of the third clarinetist knocking him unconscious and fracturing his skull later that day from his hospital bed as Paolo explained the whole ordeal to a reporter through bandaged lips he said well I thought it was a good idea at the time (laughs) and just as as a side note the reporter who wrote this article ended the article by saying I think the moral of the story is beware the next time you hear someone in the trombone section yell out, hey, y'all, watch this. (laughs) And I tell you that story because it parallels a quotation from a writer who, in writing about worship, says to us Christians, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? He said, the churches are filled with children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, making up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. He said, it's madness for ladies to wear straw hats and men to wear velvet hats to church. Rather, we should be wearing crash helmets instead. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for our sleeping God may awake and take offense or our waking God may draw us out to a place where we may never return. And, and while I don't agree with every single word of that author's writings, I, I think the point is well taken that many contemporary worshipers are altogether too casual in their approach to worship services. Uh, whether it's the, the churches that have a, the coffee house kind of feel with worshipers sitting around tables with mochas and lattes, or, or even in a, a formal church setting where people slide into the pews with no more thought than if they were settling in to watch a movie. Uh, But either way, there doesn't appear to be a lot of holy fear and reverence and hesitation about approaching God because if there was, maybe we'd all be wearing crash helmets in the sanctuary. Maybe we'd be wearing them into church just in case. And the whole point being that the holy, almighty God of the universe... Is not to be trifled with uh, and that's basically david's point in psalm 15 as he wonders out loud just who is qualified to approach a god whose holiness makes him utterly unapproachable and he's saying surely surely it can't be just anybody it can't be just anybody in any old spiritual condition who could just dare to approach god in worship Now, admittedly, taken to the extreme, it's not difficult to see why a thought like that could empty out the average church on a Sunday morning. Because the bar seems set way too high. Even the best of us have have dirty hands and hearts that are harboring hidden sins and mouths that love gossip and criticism. While at the same time we use that same mouth to flatter folks to turn as many circumstances as we can to our own advantage. Uh, Great men of God, like the Apostle Paul and uh, the Reformer Martin Luther and other godly men and women down through the centuries of the church have definitely understood the crux of how serious this problem is. Uh, This problem of unjust people trying to live in the presence of a God that is just and holy. And we talked about it last week pretty extensively, and I don't want to replow all the territory that we went through. But I want to kind of help you see this idea from a little different angle today here in Psalm 15. It's a psalm that, that may have come about because a group of children, spiritual children, were playing around kind of fast and loose with a power that they failed to have enough respect for. And I say that because several commentators believe our psalm today was inspired by an experience, a, a jarring experience in the life of David that comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it, it may perhaps be a story that you never read before. Uh, so if you have your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, uh, and the, the author says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Be'a'ala, Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which was called the name of the Lord of Hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God. And Ahio went before the Ark. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. The oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died beside the ark. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can it come to me? pretty shocking story right it's one of those rather difficult old testament passages that some readers struggle with they struggle with the apparent brutality of god's judgment here and sometimes have a hard time trying to to make sense of it and it's because let's be honest it offends our human sensibility and our sense of justice right and the idea that in our eyes you know uh, the punishment has to fit the crime and if we feel like the punishment is more severe than the crime, in our opinion, that an injustice has been committed. But then we have to take a step back and say, but wait a minute, This, this is God we're talking about. This is God. And the book of Genesis tells us the judge of all the earth must do right. We know that God's judgments are always righteous. We know His judgments are never unfair. They're never capricious. They're never dictatorial. In fact, it's impossible for God to be unjust because his very nature is truth and holiness and justice. But, you know, still some folks who don't recognize perhaps the majesty and the grandeur and the holiness and the height and the power of God. Uh, this story can make them feel almost as angry as Samuel said David was. When David began to ask the question, Lord, uh, if this is going to happen, who can dwell in your sanctuary? And literally the question he's asking is, who can live in a relationship with such close proximity to God? Who can, who can get close to Him in His tabernacle? That place that was considered to be the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts. The symbol of God's presence. The, the presence in the Holy of Holies where no one was allowed to go. No one except the high priest. And that was just once a year. That place where the Ark and the Covenant belong. The, the place where it was actually headed when Uzzah touched the Ark and wham! He dropped dead. And just to kind of set the scene here, you have to kind of kind of picture in your mind. So the Ark is being transported toward Jerusalem, and it's uh, as you might expect, it was a, a joyous celebration for the nation of Israel. And, and they're traveling, and all of a sudden the oxen stumble they they trip over a rough patch in the road and the the cart lurched and the ark is about to fall and because of its sacredness it was unthinkable to those standing around it that this precious object would be desecrated by falling in the mud of an ox traveled road so there's Uzzah who immediately instinctively uh, out of out of pure human reflex reaches out to keep the ark from falling in the mud In his commentary uh, on this passage, R.C. Sproul wrote, From our perspective, this seems like an act of heroism on the part of Uzzah. We think Uzzah should have heard the voice of God from heaven shouting down, Thank you, Uzzah! But instead, he killed him on the spot. Why? Why would God do that? What what was Uzzah's sin that caused God to, to act so harshly? And... Just to give you a little bit more background, uh, if you think back during the story of the Exodus uh, in the wilderness, if you remember, God had assigned tasks and duties to various clans and families in Israel uh, in caring for his traveling temple, for his his tabernacle. And those jobs were passed down in families as a direct and sacred duty from a father to his son. Uh, Every family knew what was expected of them. And nobody else was allowed to do the jobs that they were supposed to do. Well, our our friend Uzzah today was from a family in a tribe called the Kohathites. And God had specifically said to the clan that the Kohathites are to come and to carry the ark, but they must not touch the holy thing or they will what? Die. They'll die. So we know Uzzah was aware of what his duties as a Kohathite were. He understood that God had declared that touching the ark was a capital offense. Uh, No Kohathite under any circumstances was ever, ever permitted to touch the ark. That's the whole reason the ark was made with rings on the side to put poles through to transport. If you had time to read the rest of the Exodus account, it was also well known that the ark was only ever, ever to be carried by men on foot. Period. And every Kohathite man and his son knew that. But you know, after a while... They kind of got real complacent in handling sacred things, kind of like we do from time to time. We get lax. We get lazy. We get sloppy in handling God's sacred treasures, the treasures of His Word, the treasures of His sacrament, the treasures of prayer and holy fellowship. And truth be told, we know we're doing it, right? Let's at least be honest. We know we're doing it, but we do it anyway, intentionally ignoring the inherent danger of treating the God of the universe as an afterthought. Uh, That's what happened to the Kohathites. They uh, They were either just too lazy to care or too complacent to realize that they were disobeying God and transporting his ark on an ox cart. And then there's Uzzah. Then there's Uzzah who not only looks at the ark uncovered, but watches as the ark is loaded on a hay wagon. And not only did he do that, but he reached out his hand and he touched it. He, he handled the holy he treated the consecrated like it was commonplace uh, And it was no act of hallowed heroism on his part It was an act of arrogance It was a sin of presumption because Uzzah assumed that his hand and his eyes Were less polluted than the earth that was underneath his feet But in god's sight, it wasn't the ground. It wasn't the mud that would desecrate the ark It was the touch of a man I want you to think about this. The dirt on the road was being obedient. It was doing what God tells dirt to do. When dirt gets packed down, it it makes a firm place to walk. When it gets wet, it makes mud. When it gets baked, it makes clay. Dirt always does all the things that God commands dirt to do, but guess who doesn't? Humanity, right? Humanity, you and me. It's man who rebels against God. And God did not want his holy throne to be touched by human hands that are all too often raised against him in rebellion. But brothers and sisters, you know, but the reason that, that people can look on a story like this and wonder if God is really just and really fair and loving is, is because we don't properly understand the heights of God's holiness and justice and grace and mercy. We just don't, we don't realize it anymore. And, you know, in, in, in this country, we don't have too many criminal offenses that are still punishable by the death penalty. But, you know, the Old Testament had about 30 or so, like uh, consulting a medium or a fortune teller, blaspheming God's name, kidnapping, rape. Uh, those were and are very serious to God because he said we bear his image. And when we violate that image in ourselves or in others, it's deadly serious. So when you take into account that just having those 30 capital offenses in the Old Testament Torah law If you think about it, it's actually a demonstration of amazing grace astonishing grace But to realize that you have to go all the way back to the beginning You got to go back to see God's original rules for the universe and see what exactly was the original penalty for sin in the created order And the prophet ezekiel helps us out with that He gives us that answer in Ezekiel 18 when he said, The soul that sins, any sin, shall die. See, in creation all sin is deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital offense. In the words of R.C. Sproul, again, every sin is cosmic treason. Every sin is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one in whom we owe everything. The one who who created us and, and gave us the gift of life So when we sin and disobey God, in the slightest point, what we're really saying is, God, we believe we're above your jurisdiction. We believe we have the right to do whatever we want to do and not what our Creator has commanded us to do. Causing uh, one theologian to write the most mysterious aspect of sin is not that sinners deserve to die, but rather that offenders continue to live. And so the issue is not why does God punish sin, but really why is He so patient with our rebellion? Uh, what leader or, or ruler or, or parent or employer would show such patience to such rebellious and stubborn people? Uh, and so then when God does act with justice, we're shocked and, and we're offended. But it's only because, like careless mountain climbers who underestimate the danger of the ascent, that we take God's grace and mercy for granted instead of taking advantage of His patience by coming to Him humbly for forgiveness And so we end up using his grace as an opportunity to sin more boldly. So then the story of of Uzzah and other such accounts in the Old Testament, far from being a history of a severe and an angry God, are actually a record of a God who is persistently patient in the face of a stiff-necked people who rebel time and time again against him. Uh, And actually that's always the case, whether it's the people on the hills in Jerusalem, all the way around the world, and across the centuries, down to the people here in Zephyr Hills, right? But you know, the trouble with all that is it still leaves us with the same question, doesn't it? Who will the Lord find worthy to be with him on his sacred summit? Who can can climb God's holy hill and live a blameless life in his sanctuary and and handle the holy things in his presence? And so David tells us, he says, it's it's he who walks blamelessly and does what's right and speaks the truth in his heart. It's he who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor or take up a reproach against a friend. It's he in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money to interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. I don't know about you, but I think that sounds like a pretty tall order, doesn't it? Pretty tall order. Anybody want to step up and give that mountain a try? Anybody? After hearing all those qualifications, anybody here whose walk is blameless? Anybody who's never spoken evil of a neighbor or criticized a friend? Anyone who always honors and fears the Lord? Uh, I don't know about you, but left to my own, I wouldn't even make it to the base camp, let alone the summit. So where does that leave us? Where, where do we look? How do we even contemplate a climb toward a God who is so holy that it's an actual danger to us? Well, the truth is we don't. The truth is He came down to us. He came down to us. The truth is He stepped into time and into humanity not just to help us climb the way up but praise God to carry us along all the way up the hill. Up the hill to Mount Calvary. And people can talk all they want about God being angry and violent in the Old Testament, but the truth is the most brutal act of divine vengeance ever recorded in Scripture was not in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. The things that men like Uzzah experienced were a walk in the park, a Sunday drive, a regular afternoon compared to the gruesomeness of Golgotha. On that hill were by far the most violent expression of God's wrath, and justice was witnessed at the cross. Uh, if ever a person had room to complain of injustice, it was Jesus. If ever a scene made us dumbfounded at the wrath of God, it was at the cross. If ever a bad thing happened to a truly good person, it was at Calvary. At the cross where God crushed an innocent man under the weight of my sin and all the sin of the world. A place where our loving God has made a way for men And women to approach him to approach him today through the person and the work of jesus christ when by the ministry of the holy spirit we receive him by faith into our lives to dwell in us and that's where our journey really begins that's where christ brings his sheep into his kingdom and begins that process of transformation in us and he can do that he can do that legitimately in spite of all of my faults and in spite of all of your faults because of the cross Brothers and sisters, the Lord is calling you to his holy mountain today. But praise God, he's already done all the work. He's already made the way. He's already given us the roadmap of his word and the provision of his table and direct communication with the summit in prayer. All that's left for us now is to take that first step. Because, brothers and sisters, the mountain awaits. Will you join me there? Let's pray. God, our Father's source of life and love and justice and mercy, we thank you that by what we do here at this table in remembrance of your Son is to celebrate his perfect sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. We pray, Lord, as we eat and drink today at Christ's command that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we drink may be for us the communion of the body and blood of your precious Son in whose name we pray. Amen. And as we sing our communion hymn.